All right, welcome. My name's Kevin Twitt. I am a campus minister. I don't work for Belmont, but I work with Belmont students and have done that for the last 13 years with uh, one of the ministries that's here on campus called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. And it's a pleasure to be here with you and to share with you uh, about this book, Surprised by Hope, by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, you may not have heard of him, but he really is um, widely regarded as the most important New Testament scholar working in the world today. He's also a bishop in the Anglican Church uh, in England. And as a matter of fact, he spoke last night about this book at West End United Methodist Church. Anybody have a chance to go to that? Yeah. It was, I ended up having the very last RUF that I had to, had to teach at, and so I wasn't able to go see him, which is kind of ironic. Here I am going to talk about his book, and I missed one of his rare national appearances when he came last night. Oh, well. Um, maybe if this uh, convo intrigues you, uh, my hope really is that you'll pick up the book and read it. It's a profoundly interesting book. And what he's doing, if I would just summarize it for you in this book, is he's saying that basically uh, confusion among Christians and among people outside of the church about what Christian hope really is has had very unfortunate implications in the kind of work the church has set itself to doing in this world. And what he's saying is this, that basically... Even though the New Testament and the early church are remarkably uniform in their understanding of what the Christian hope is, and and namely that hope is for the new heavens and the new earth, for a physical creation that has been restored, including um, a bodily physical existence for God's people. Even though the New Testament and the early church are absolutely clear on that, there's really no difference in thought, even though these people came from widely different backgrounds with widely different beliefs before they came to embrace Christianity. Once they embrace Christianity, this is probably, there's probably more uniformity in this belief than almost any other thing in the early church. Even though that's true, among Christians today, most Christians today, he, he contends, have lost has lost sight of what the true Christian hope is. Instead, most people think that what the Bible teaches is that when you die, you go to heaven. And he actually points out that the New Testament never really says that. Now, he says it's fine for you to talk about that if you want, but chances are, even when you talk that way, you're thinking of heaven uh, sort of in a way that's based more upon Platonic philosophy than upon Christian and Jewish thought. In other words, the idea of heaven is not, and our future is not, according to the New Testament and according to the early church, without exception, the, the hope for, for Christians is not that we would somehow be set free from our body and spend all eternity on a cloud somewhere. That is not Christian hope. There is a sense in which there is a temporary existence, according to the Bible, when our souls, are, are sort of our true being, our spiritual part, will be separated from our body, but that's a temporary existence. It's not the ultimate hope that we look forward to. And what he says is, if we think the ultimate end or the ultimate hope uh, of, of God's future is for us to have a disembodied existence, well, then it will carry over into the way we live now and will make Christians think that the point of their existence now is just to get people to that disembodied existence. In other words, just to save some souls and get them away from this wicked earth. But in fact, if we believe that what God is doing and what God began to do in the resurrection of Jesus was to make all things new, 
in anticipation of making the new heavens and the new earths new, if that's what, what the resurrection is about, if that's what God's future is, then that should call us to be deeply committed to working for beauty and justice and building the kingdom of God here. And as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the longest discussion of the resurrected bodies that Christians will have, the longest discussion of it in, in, in the Bible anywhere, at the very end of that section, come on in, you can come on in. And, okay. At the very end of that section, what Paul says is, because the resurrection is true, therefore, your labor is not in vain. In fact, Paul says that the work you do Working for justice and beauty and the kingdom here on earth will somehow be carried over into the new heavens and the new earth. It will not all be wiped away. That's a pretty radical, it's a pretty radical idea. Um, he, I, I will just let you know, he doesn't buy for one bit the popular end times ideas that are expressed in dispensational theology as popularized by the Left Behind books. So if you think the end times are going to turn out like the Left Behind books, you're seriously mistaken according to the Bible. Um, We can talk about that. I'll give you some Q&A time if you want. Um, There's a number of places where people have really misunderstood the Bible. Um, For instance, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, according to the Jews in the early church, was not the ultimate destination. He's not talking there about heaven. He's talking about a temporary holding place which, where, where people would go until all things are made right and the physical resurrection happens. The ultimate destination is not paradise. In other words, the early church did not just talk about life after death. What the Christian hope is, is not a mere notion of immortality of life after death, but in fact, life, real life after life after death. Similarly, when Jesus talks to his disciples about how Um, In his father's house, there are many rooms, and he goes to prepare a place for them. The word that he uses there in the Greek is a word for a temporary abode, not an ultimate destination. And so for a lot of Christians, they need to reconsider what the New Testament and the early church actually taught about the future, because it has everything to do with what we do now in this world. So what he's doing is he's connecting the future hope with the present mission of the church, And saying if you get the future hope wrong, you will inevitably reduce the present mission to something that's sort of just spiritual, but doesn't involve caring for the poor and working for justice. It's a very important book. Very important book. Now, um, I've given you this little outline. I'm going to summarize sort of how he gets there, and then we're going to talk about, have have some time for questions. I obviously, uh, these are not my words. For the most part, these are either direct quotes from his book or summary uh, of his thought, and hopefully a fair summary. That I don't agree with everything in this book, let me say, um, but I think most of it is, is right on and very important. So here's what he basically talks about. First, he talks about how there is confusion about the idea of hope in our culture. Um, he talks about how, incidentally, you know, one of the, one of the things that shows um, that this idea that all religions are basically the same, one of the ways that you can show that that's a ridiculous lie is by examining what all the various world religions believe about the end times. The Jewish idea of a bodily resurrection for all people is nowhere near, it's not even similar to the Buddhist idea that you lose your personhood and you become part of the cosmic soup in reality. Or it's nowhere near the Hindu idea of reincarnation. 
So to think that all religions basically teach the same thing is, is really naive. So please disabuse yourself of that idea. It's not helpful. Um, and, it, and, and yet in our culture, there are very, they're very people that sort of take ideas from this religion, this religion, try to sort of mash them all together, and basically end up with sort of these ideas. Well, you hear them all the time sort of at public funerals, or you, 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 you know, people will talk about how so-and-so, even though they're dead, they're not really gone. You know, they can still hear us. They're still with us in the wind and the trees and in the, in the, in the, in the sky or, you know, whatever, you know, like the Lion King, you can kind of, you know, the circle of life, all these kinds of ideas. Um, even Christians believe these kinds of ideas, which is pretty crazy because this is one of those issues that there is really no <coughs> diversity of opinion in the early church about this issue or in the New Testament. The, the, the ideas presented in the New Testament and in the early church are solidly physical. The hope is solidly physical, not just otherworldly. And so he writes about this. And then he begins to talk about, well, where did the early Christians get this idea? Now, I know probably some of you maybe in your philosophy classes or whatnot have heard this idea that there was sort of this common belief in the, in the first century in, in this idea of resurrection or in gods who would be resurrected and that the early church simply borrowed this idea from the culture. N.T. Wright, actually in the book previous to this one called The Resurrection of the Son of God, an 800-page book, examines every text we have from this, this period, every religious belief, everything that's ever been written by any ancient people about heaven or resurrection or the future hope, and absolutely demolishes the idea that the early church picked up this idea from the culture. As a matter of fact, the Jewish idea, the Jewish idea was that there would be a physical bodily resurrection, but it would happen to everybody at the same time, and it would happen at the very last day, at the very end of all things. That's the Jewish hope. It is for a physical bodily resurrection. But the Jews were unique in that idea of a physical bodily resurrection. There are no other peoples that have any concept of bodily resurrection. As a matter of fact, the idea would have been scandalous to the Greeks, because for the Greeks... And for the Greek philosophers, what was really your hope was that you'd finally be set free from your body. Because your body was seen as, as really sort of this, this earth suit that you needed to be set free from. So the idea of bodily resurrection comes, in some ways it's connected to the Jewish idea. It doesn't at all make sense in sort of a Greek way of thinking. And yet, the Christian idea is, has transformed the Jewish idea in a number of hugely significant ways. And, and Wright explains some of these things. I, I, I'll give you a quick little, little summary. I put some of these down here. He says, listen, what you need to understand, here's some sort of seven surprising alterations to the Jewish belief in resurrection. Um, the, you know, the, the Greeks, for instance, had an idea of life after death, of immortality, but it wasn't physical. And they had a perfectly good way of describing it. They never used the word resurrection for this. So when you find the early church using this word resurrection of the body, they're in a completely different um, sort of ideological um, framework than the Greek idea. And as a matter of fact, there is no ancient peoples that use believe this idea, the resurrection of the body, except the Jews. And the Christian idea, while it sort of connects to the Jewish idea, is radically different in a number of ways. What are these ways? A couple of them for you. Um, what's remarkable about the early Christian belief compared to the Jewish belief is that it's a remarkably uniform belief. Like I told you, there, there really is no early Christian or Christian writer that, that doesn't 
have the same view of the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what makes this remarkable is that within Judaism, you don't have this uniformity. The Sadducees, who if you've read the New Testament, you might have run across a group of people called the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the body. So you have within Judaism one camp, the Pharisees, who believes in the resurrection of the body that will come. But you have another group, the Sadducees, who don't believe it at all. And the early church contains both Sadducees and Pharisees and people who come from this Greek understanding that there will be no kind of physical future because physicalness is what's bad about us. All of these different people, when they come to embrace Christianity, they all come to agree completely about the future hope of the new heavens and the new earth and a physically renewed body. So that's the first point. in, In Judaism, the idea of resurrection was important, but it wasn't really that important. But in Christianity, it is absolutely central. Listen, if you give up the idea, or if you decide that the birth of Christ is not that important, and, and you believe that, you know, maybe it doesn't matter, well, you lose two chapters of Luke, two chapters of Luke, and two chapters of Matthew. That's, that's, that's really all the Bible talks about, the birth of Jesus, even though, you know, we make it a big deal at Christmas and whatnot. But if you throw out the idea of the resurrection of Christ, you lose the entire New Testament and you lose most everything that was written by the early church fathers in the second century as well. You cannot have Christianity without the resurrection. It is central to it, and it's vital to everything that it teaches. This is different from the Jewish understanding, do you understand? And there has to be something that accounts for this difference. What changed? Uh, In Judaism, there was a rather vague idea about the kinds of bodies that the resurrection would bring. Even though they believed it was physical, they had a very vague understanding of this. In Christianity, it's very specific, and it's very detailed, and again, there's a very uniform idea. It will be a physical body, the Christians say, with new, transformed properties. Uh, Not only that, the Jews believed that the resurrection would be one event at the end of all times, but the Christians, from the very beginning, Uh, go around saying that the resurrection is now a two-stage event. The first stage has happened with Jesus, who has been bodily resurrected and who's appeared to us, but yet there's still a future resurrection. So instead of the Jewish idea that it's a one-time event at the end of time, now for the Christians it's a two-stage event. Um, Not only that, the resurrection of Jesus, rather than being the end, the Jewish idea was the resurrection is the end, the Christians actually believe that the resurrection calls God's people into action and working uh, for, for this world to be a better place. They don't believe that the resurrection of Jesus signals the end. It signals the beginning of the end. Uh, furthermore, um, resurrection in Judaism really is a metaphor for return from the exile. In Christianity, now it refers to the renewal of all human beings, not just Jews. And here's what you need to understand. The resurrection causes Christians not just to think differently about the future, but to think differently about the Messiah. In Judaism, no one, hear me, no one expected the Messiah to die. Therefore, no one expected the Messiah to be raised from the dead. It wasn't on their radar at all. And yet, the early Christians, right from the beginning, are proclaiming that Jesus the Messiah has both died and been resurrected. Now, here's what you need to think about. People tend to be very conservative in their understanding about death. 
if there's one area sort of in our lives where we tend to sort of go back to the safety of what we've been taught, it's when we're faced with bereavement and the death of friends and loved ones. So there has to be something pretty significant that happened for these Jews to radically re-envision their idea of resurrection. And of course, this is what Christians believe. Christians believe that something happened on Easter that changed everything. And it's a strange story. It's not a story that was expected. Now, Wright actually shows a number of points why we really can trust the gospel accounts of the resurrection as being very, very early tellings of this story. In other words, while it's been popular among a lot of, a lot of um, scholars lately to try to re-envision what the resurrection meant and to say something like, well, you know, after Jesus died, um, his followers experienced sort of a renewal within their own hearts of hope and a sense that now that he's gone, it's up to us to pick up the torch and to carry forward this mission of love and the fatherhood of God and whatnot. It's very popular for people to say that that's really uh, where the idea of resurrection came from, that as these disciples sort of found a rebirth of hope in their life, that they could basically say, well, you know, Jesus has been resurrected in a sense in our hearts and in our hope. Listen, there was perfectly good ways for people in the first century to talk about that sort of renewal of hope, but resurrection wasn't the way they described it. Resurrection meant something very specific. And, and here's what you need to understand. When you actually examine those stories in the Gospels, you find four features that really argue against the idea that these stories, in the form we have them in the Gospels, uh, really reflect a hundred years of the church sort of reflecting and thinking and theologizing about this. In other words, the stories that we have in the Gospels, even though the Gospels are written 30 to 40 years after the event, the way that the stories are told reflect the way the first Christians understood it, not the way Christians 30 or 40 years later were thinking about it. In other words, I don't know if you realize this or not, but most of the letters of Paul predate the Gospels. And in the letters of Paul, there's quite a lot of thinking about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for theology and for Christians. But when you look at the way the Gospels describe the resurrection, there's none of that. In other words, the, the Gospel accounts maintain the confusion that existed in the very first Christians, rather than sort of the, the mature reflection and thought that you have in the, in, in the later 30, 40 years later. What that means is, uh, for various reasons, the gospel accounts of the resurrection um, have, have very high um, degree of accuracy. And, and I, I won't go through those points. If you're interested in that, um, you know, you can look at this. But a couple of the points are this. The, the New Testament, the gospel accounts record that women were the primary witnesses. Maybe you realize this. But what you may not realize is that in that culture, women's testimony was not valid in a court of law. And by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he actually downplays the role of women as, as witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks a lot about various witnesses to, to, God's, uh, to Christ's resurrected body. He very much downplays the fact that it was women who were the first witnesses. That doesn't mean that he's embarrassed by it. But it's not the thing he focuses on. The gospel accounts, all four of them, record without embarrassment that it was women who were the principal witnesses. If you were trying to make up a story and convince people it was true, you would not have made women the principal witnesses. 
Now, I think that that's an, sort of a, a you know, horrible you know, prejudice against women, but that is the fact of the first century. Okay? Not only that, but the description of Jesus' body in the gospel accounts is really pretty weird. Uh, in other words, at times, it's obvious that he's physical. You know, look at the wounds in my body. Thomas, put your hand in my side. But then at other times, the body that Jesus has seems to do weird things that physical bodies shouldn't be able to do. Like all of a sudden it appears in the midst of a bunch of disciples in a locked room. So it almost seems like it, it, it walks through walls. And yet what you don't find in the gospel accounts is an attempt to smooth this out. It's just sort of presented there. Like this confused the heck out of us. And we're just going to tell you, we're just going to tell you like the way we, the way we, sort of understood it, even though it didn't make much sense to us. So, um, you know, something must have happened to change this Jewish belief and to account for the way it's described in the, in the gospel accounts. And here's, you know, here's what N.T. Wright concludes on this. And uh, I'm not exactly sure. My outline's a little different than you, yours. But it's after these four little points. He says, in order to explain historically how all the early Christians came to the belief they held that Jesus had been raised... We have to say at least this, that the tomb was empty, except for some grave clothes, and that they really did see and talk with someone who gave every appearance of being a solidly physical Jesus. Though a Jesus who was strangely changed, more strangely than they are able to fully describe. Both the meetings with the resurrected Jesus and the empty tomb are necessary if we are to explain the rise of the belief and the writing of the stories as we have them. Neither by itself is sufficient. Put them together, though, and they provide a complete and coherent explanation for the rise of the early Christian belief. What he's saying is, if all you had was an empty tomb, then the early Christians would not have been driven to this crazy idea that Jesus had been physically raised from the dead. They would have concluded, as actually the very first women concluded, that the gardener has moved the body. Or perhaps we went to the wrong place. They would not merely with an empty tomb, have concluded that Jesus must have been physically raised. Furthermore, if all they had were appearances of Jesus to them after they'd seen him dead, they would have concluded that it was a ghost. Because there was a popular and pretty widespread belief that sometimes dead people made appearances sort of as ghosts to people after they had died. But the early church comes to a very different belief. They're driven beyond the explanations that were right there at hand. They're driven to this crazy idea that had never occurred to anybody ever before that one person would be physically raised from the dead. How? What drove them to it? Now, this is not where, you know, you don't get here into the area of absolute scientific proof. Because in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is the contention that we're dealing with a new aspect of creation. And science, by its very nature, is limited, certainly, in its ability to describe new creation that hasn't fully come yet. But when you talk about the realm of historical proof, this is on the level of highly, highly probable. There, there has been all kinds of people from the time of Christ who have attempted to come up with alternate suggestions to explain this claim of the disciples, to explain the reality of the appearances and 
the empty tomb. There have been lots of them, but none of them have had any sticking power because none of them can really adequately explain why these Jewish people started running around saying that the person who had been, who had been killed by the Romans, who had disappointed all of their expectations of what the Messiah would do, that this person is still alive and has actually defeated death. How do you account for that? How do you account for that? Something must, must make sense of that. And, and Wright, I, I think, does a wonderful job, actually very quickly, sort of interacting with a few of the alternate suggestions and theories that have been thrown out. Let me just briefly tell you these. This idea sometimes gets thrown around. Well, Jesus didn't really die. Someone gave him a drug that made him look dead, and he revived in the tomb. What do we say to that? Well, answer. Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. They knew how to kill people. Not only that, no disciple would have been fooled by a drugged, beat-up Jesus into thinking that he defeated death and it inaugurated the new age. It's ludicrous. Well, what about this? When the women went to the tomb, they met someone else, perhaps James, Jesus' half-brother, who in the early dawn half-light looked a lot like Jesus, and they were confused. Listen, that would have been straightened out pretty soon, don't you think? (laughs) James would have said, hey, sorry, I'm not Jesus. Okay? Well, what about this idea? Jesus only appeared to people who believed in him. No, no. Actually, neither Thomas nor Paul fit into this category. The accounts make it very clear that absolutely none of Jesus' followers believed that he would rise again after he died. None of them. They weren't expecting it, and it took them a long time to actually believe that it really happened. The accounts that we have are biased, people say. Well, of course. All history is biased, as is all journalism. Everybody has to stand from somewhere to talk about something. But something happened. Something happened. Okay? The fifth thing. They began, you know, this, this has become more popular lately. The, the disciples began by saying things like, he will be raised, which was something that a lot of Jews believed about Jewish martyrs, that eventually they will be raised. And somehow, the more they talked about how Jesus will be raised, like all the other martyrs, it sort of transmuted and evolved into he has been raised which, after all, sort of means the same thing. It doesn't mean the same thing. It doesn't mean the same thing. And there's, there, there's no way that that actually makes sense of what you find the early church doing. Um, six, lots of people have visions of people they love who've just died. That's what happened to the disciples. Answer, the disciples perfectly well, and the early, early peoples knew about this phenomena, but that isn't what they claimed happened. They had a perfectly good way of saying this. You actually even find it referred to in the New Testament at times. People would say if that happened, they've seen his spirit or they've seen his ghost. They would never use the word resurrection for that. And finally, what actually happened was the disciples had some sort of rich spiritual experience, which they interpreted through Jewish categories. Jesus was alive spiritually in their hearts. Again, right, says... What, what you have here is really a, a redescription of death, a redescription that resurrection means that he's still living somehow spiritually. But the word resurrection never means that. It never means that. So we have to face the, the, the facts that we have before us. What happened? And Wright actually adds three often overlooked points that I'll just throw in here, no extra charge. Jewish tombs, especially tombs of martyrs, were often places where people began to worship and eventually became shrines. But there's no evidence anywhere that that happened with the tomb of Jesus. Not only that, but you know what you need to understand about Jewish burials 
is that Jewish burials, they would put the body wrapped in this cloth that were filled with all these spices. They would put the body in a cave temporarily until all the flesh rotted off. Then they would take the bones, regather them, and go bury them. But again, there's no second burial of the bones of Jesus. Um, so, you know, how is it that Jesus' tomb is not venerated if he was a famous Jewish martyr and the tomb really wasn't empty? Second, how can you explain the Jewish early church changing the Sabbath day? Something huge had to happen to change their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. The resurrection accounts for that. But you really have to search to find a reason why they would change something that's in the Big Ten. It's in the Ten Commandments, guys. It's not like Jews are going to just throw that away and change it without something huge really forcing them to do that. And third, the disciples were hardly likely to go out and suffer and die for something that they knew wasn't true. So, so we have to deal with the resurrection. And, you know, Wright argues, you know, it's no use arguing that science has proved that dead people don't come back from the dead. Everybody in the first century knew that. For, you know, we, we tend to have this sort of modern arrogance to think that ancient people were more gullible. But listen, there's a good reason why people thought it remarkable when Jesus walked on water. There's a good reason why people were freaked out when he came back from the dead. They knew that that didn't happen. They didn't expect it to happen. And it was a difficult thing for them to believe. But finally, they came to the belief because they had no other way to understand the reality they were faced with. So that's the first part of the book. And, and it's a powerful book. And, and if you want to explore that more, all I can say is I just summarized you know, something like 115 pages okay, in 20 minutes. So you may, uh, if you want to explore that more, if you find, well, I think, you know, this, he, listen, he responds to all kinds of objections that I, we don't have time to today. So if you really are interested seriously in pursuing this and finding out the truth of this matter, um, I challenge you to take up the book and read it. Uh, but then he gets into part two, where he now begins to say, okay, that's, that was the early church's hope and how they came to their hope. What, what is it? How would we describe this hope in more detail? And he basically says this, listen, um, under part two, God's future plan. What is the world waiting for? Actually, I think Wright very wisely says, most of us want to talk about what happens to us individually and personally when we die. The Bible actually resists that. The Bible does have things to say about what happens to you personally, but it's much more concerned about what happens to all of God's creation. And the reason that we always want to start with us as individuals is because we're squeezed by modern Western individualism. The Bible is much more concerned about the whole cosmos, the whole of creation. And so what is it that the Bible says the whole world is waiting for? And here's the way he describes it. The early Christians did not believe in progress. They did not think the world was getting better and better under its own steam or even under the steady influence of God. They didn't believe that the world was getting better. They knew God had to do something fresh to put it to rights, but neither did they believe the world was getting worse and worse, and their task was to escape it altogether, like way too many modern Christians seem to think. They were not dualists, and since most people who think about these things today tend towards either the idea that you know, progress is just inevitably happening, or the world is getting worse, and our only hope is to escape it with the rapture or some crazy idea like that, well, you know, when it, com- it may come as a surprise to you that the early Christians did not believe either one of those ideas at all. They didn't. They believed God was going to do for the whole cosmos, the whole of creation, what he had done for Jesus at Easter. This is such a surprising belief 
and so little reflected on even in Christian circles, still less outside of the church. But the whole creation, as Paul says in Romans 8, 19, is on tiptoe with expectation, longing for the day when God's children are revealed, when their resurrection will herald or will proclaim that the whole cosmos is going to be renewed. When what happened to Jesus happens to all Jesus' people. This is what Paul says, that the whole creation is, is frustrated even now, but is longing with eager expectation, longing for the day when God will give life to our mortal bodies and in doing so bring life and renewal to the whole of his creation. This is the Christian hope. And it's much, much, much bigger than just saving some souls from this perishing planet. Christians should not just be concerned about souls. The Bible isn't. Jesus wasn't. He didn't just go around proclaiming, hey, you can have uh, salvation. In other words, you can go to heaven when you die. He went around doing all kinds of things to proclaim in word and deed that God is turning everything upside down. In the words of C.S. Lewis from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, death has now begun to work backward. Or in that great phrase, um, what, um, I think it's Gandalf that says it to Sam Ganji. Or no, it's Ganji that, um, that, that says it to Gandalf. Will now everything sad become untrue? That's the Christian hope. That's the Christian hope. The Bible does not teach at the end of the story is that Christians go off to heaven as naked souls. Rather, the Bible teaches very clearly in the book of Revelation that the new heavens and the new earth come down to this place, that you will be here and physical for all eternity. That's a pretty different idea than a lot of Christians have, right? And and, and here's here's what he says, what's so fascinating. He says, uh, so far from sitting on clouds playing harps, as people often imagine, the redeemed people of God in the new world will be the agents of his love going out in new ways to accomplish new creative tasks, to celebrate and extend the glory of his love. In other words, what God created mankind to do, to take the cultivation that was the Garden of Eden and extend it to the whole cosmos, God has not given up on that plan. And the new heavens and the new earth will involve God's people taking his glory and extending it to the whole cosmos. You won't just be sitting around at the feet of Jesus, gazing up into his eyes. You'll be working to extend and to explore his new creation for all eternity. That's a pretty different understanding, I think, from what a lot of Christians have. And yet here's what's so important about it. What this means is that there is a connection between the kinds of things you're supposed to be doing now and what you'll be doing for all eternity. Uh, But before he gets to that and talks about that, um, he, he talks about this idea about the idea of heaven. And here's what may be fascinating for you to understand. Contrary to what a lot of people think, the early Christians and the early Jews did not believe in sort of a three-decker idea of reality, where you have this world and then up in the sky somewhere is heaven and under the ground somewhere is hell. They didn't believe that. I know a lot of people claim they believe that, but they didn't believe that, and it's easily provable if you want to dig in and read the evidence that he presents in this book. What they believed actually, what they believed actually was that heaven was a different dimension of reality. That it wasn't a place within this space and time continuum. It was actually a different dimension. And, uh, you know, it's really after Isaac Newton that Christians reject that idea and go to sort of this idea that reality 
is sort of all in one big container. And it gets Christians into all kinds of problems when they sort of bought into this. With Einstein, actually, there's sort of a renewal of the ideas of thinking about different dimensions. But in, in reality, what Einstein's doing is just going back to what the early church and the early Jewish people believed. That reality is made up of different dimensions, not different places within the same space-time continuum. Now, this really changes what you think about heaven. In other words, heaven is not up there somewhere. It's a different dimension that connects to this one. And there's a day coming when that dimension that is heaven will be married to this dimension that we understand as this world. Now, that, you know, if you want to explore that, if you're into thinking about physics and and sort of philosophy and that sort of thing. He's got some wonderful things to discuss about this. I don't have time to summarize all that. But it, it's pretty fascinating to talk about and to think about. Um, in other words, you know, Jesus is coming, and when he comes, this, the, these two dimensions are going to be brought together in a way that we can, they can interact with each other. But he also talks about this, about the idea of Jesus as a coming judge. And if there's one idea about the New Testament hope and the Bible's hope that upsets people in our day and age... It's the idea that Jesus is coming as a judge, right? We don't like that idea. But what I'd ask you to consider, what I'd ask you to consider, that the reason we don't like it has a lot to do with our cultural issues. In other words, if you, if you are somebody who actually exists in the Bible's culture, which is to say you're one of the weak and not one of the powerful of the world, the idea of God's judgment is the best news you could possibly have. Listen to the way Wright describes it. He says, The picture of Jesus as the coming judge is a vital and non-negotiable Christian belief that there will indeed be a judgment in which the Creator God will set the world right once and for all is absolutely vital to Christian and Jewish belief. The word judgment carries negative overtones, to say the least, for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. But we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing something to be celebrated, longed for, and yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. The idea that God is coming as a judge is what causes people to shout for joy and the trees to clap their hands. And listen, in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Listen, for most people in the world, what really offends them, what really offends them is not the idea that there's a judgment coming. What really offends them is that there wouldn't be a judgment. Western liberal people tend to be very offended at the idea that God is a judge and he's coming. But that's only because we don't understand what it's like to suffer systematic oppression and judgment and bullying and tyranny. And what I say is that even the things that bother you about Christianity tend to have more to do with your culture than they do um, with something that's sort of outside and sort of cultural. So you think about that. Finally, he talks about the redemption of our bodies. I've talked about that. And then he connects this, finally, this idea that the resurrection means that what we do now will carry over into the new heavens and the new earth. And this is really, you know, a, a, an amazing thing. And uh, it's under part three. I just want to read you one little, one little part about this. He says this, What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, 
building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbors yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. And again, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, right, is saying this, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, what we do is accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. What we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. I have no idea what precisely this will mean in practice. I am offering a signpost, not offering a photograph of what we will find once we get to where the signpost is painting. And then he, he makes this interesting point. He says, it is the bodily resurrection that's what upset the Roman and Jewish authorities so much. The Gnostic Christians who, you know, basically if you would believe the Da Vinci Code, you know, is, is true Christianity, it's not. But, but this Gnostic idea that what really matters is that you just sort of, you know, will be set free from your body one day and you just need to change your attitude. Those people were never persecuted by the Romans because their hope was never a threat to the people in power. But the reason that Christians got persecuted is because their hope was so this-worldly. And it sort of raises the question, why aren't we persecuted? Maybe it's because the kinds of hope that we have is not a threat to anybody in power. It's not a threat to anybody to think that we're just supposed to save souls and give them sort of hope when they die. But in actuality, Christianity should, should increase your sense that we need to change the way things are now. So thoughts or questions on this? I know there's a lot, a lot of stuff I threw out there, but I, there, surely there's got to be some questions or some, some people that want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, hey. Um, talking about the physical body. Yes, race. yeah. It's a great question because the Bible, Jesus talks about how we won't be married in heaven, and yet I don't see anything to think that gender won't be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, again, the Bible's talking about this stuff is more in the, the role of signposts than a photograph. Um, so it seems, you know, I, I think it's hard for me to imagine um, gender not being part of bodies. I know people want to talk about gender being more than just physical. Uh, at least some people do today. Um, so I have, I have every expectation that that will be a reality in some way. And so while there's continuity with our physical bodies, I mean, Jesus still bears the scars, for instance. Um, there's also a strangeness and a newness to the body that it's hard to know exactly. But I have no problem thinking that gender will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. He doesn't talk about it specifically. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, it'd be interesting. I wish you could have went last night and asked him, because um, I'm sure he's given thought to that. He's a, he's a pretty thoughtful guy, but um, yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Can you explain, I know you touched it a little bit, mm-hmm. the waiting place? Yeah, the waiting place, yeah. For the, in the, the, what, can I explain about the waiting place? The Christian idea is that death is the separation of the soul from the body. 
So when you die and your body is buried and your soul goes to be with Jesus in his presence, and this is what Paul talks about in Philippians, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But what Wright is, is, is hope, pointing out is that's not our ultimate hope. That's a temporary state. But what is going to happen is there is going to be a day when our souls will be given new resurrected bodies. And so our ultimate hope is physical resurrection. The, the idea that our souls go to be with Jesus is just a temporary thing. And while it's good, it's, you haven't seen nothing yet. And this is why he wants to talk about, rather than just talking about life after death, what, and Christians are content to just talk about life after death, and so many of our hymns and songs just talk about going to be with Jesus up into heaven. Um, but the Bible wants to talk about true life after life after death. That's where the Bible's emphasis is, and our emphasis has gotten, has gotten shifted. And it's frankly had implications for the kinds of things that we think are important. We think the soul is important because we think the ultimate destination is just a soulish, non-bodied existence. Yeah, I saw a hand over here. And is, is Wright considered more of a scholar than a theologian? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure he's an Oxford or Cambridge man. Now, the remarkable thing about him is he's both a bishop and a New Testament scholar um, and well-trained in theology. So um, he's not coming at this. His, his manner tends to be more let the text of Scripture drive me, but also he's, he's, um, he's a preeminent historian of the first century. So his, his area of expertise is the New Testament, but also the history of that time period. And he lets that drive his theology rather than, he's certainly well-versed in what we call systematic theology, but he's not approaching this sort of with systematic logical categories as much as he is saying, where does the scripture drive us? And particularly, what was the understanding of these early people and how do we account for it as a historian? So when you read it, you'll see he's a New Testament scholar and a historian. But certainly in this book, more than that 800-page book I told you about, he's drawing implications for the church's life because he's also a bishop. And as a bishop, actually in the English you know, political system, he's a member of the House of Lords. So he's had to think about, if this is true, how does this impact what we do politically and the kinds of policies we pursue as a government. He has all kinds of things about sort of the implications for justice and debt relief and, you know, all kinds of things that I didn't have time to get into. Um, he also has a lot to say about worship and the kinds of things we do in worship that either fuel this hope for a bodily existence or take away from it. And a lot of the songs we sing and a lot of things we do in worship tend to undermine the real Christian hope by making us think that the whole point is just sort of to lose ourselves in sort of this, you know, sort of ecstatic experience. Um, but we don't see, res you know, um, worship as connecting to the mission of the church to make this world a better place. So he's concerned about all, all those things. And what I love about this book more than the 800-page book is he connects the dots to the life of the church and to the kinds of things we should be investing ourselves in and working for. So 